0: Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport.
1: I'm Tim McInerney.
0: I'm Naomi O'Leary.
1: We're friends. Okay. Welcome, Naomi.
0: Anoar fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history, and politics. Uh-huh. I'm
1: recording. One, one, two, two, three. three. Okay. <laughs> Everybody. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Irish Passport Podcast.
0: We had to rush to our microphones and record this uh, special <laughs> episode because of the really exciting events in the UK. The election which has resulted in a hung parliament and has raised speculation that the DUP, the Northern Irish Party, may be called in to shore up a conservative government. So we've been flooded with questions because of the shock result about, you know, who are the DUP? So we decided to make this special episode which is about unionism.
1: And we're not the only ones asking questions. Here's David McCann of the Northern Ireland blog, uh, political blog, Slugger O'Toole, with some of the questions that he was asked this morning.
2: I'm David McCann. I am the deputy editor of the Northern Ireland current affairs website, Slugger O'Toole. The DUP has traditionally been seen as one of uh, Northern Ireland's more traditionally conservative political parties. So it is an avidly, uh pro-union party, so it wants to keep Northern Ireland with, uh, within the United Kingdom. Some English journalist friends who are DMing me on Twitter and ringing me and asking me similar sorts of questions. So so who is Nigel Dodds uh, and what will, what, what, what's he like and what did the DUP stand on this and why won't Sinn Féin take their seats in the House of Commons? You have to remember the Liberal Democrats, the Labour Party, the Conservatives don't seriously contest in Northern Ireland. We kinda have our own political system with our main with our own main parties, those who contest locally, they don't contest across the rest of the UK. So it has always been seen as a place apart.
0: That was David McCann speaking to me on the phone this morning. Uh, we had a little chat to digest the results and what they might mean for the UK and for Northern Ireland. Like you said, he's been inundated by questions. So we're going to break it down and just start from the beginning. Who, who, who's who in this whole story?
1: Yeah, and for our listeners around the world, or for people who may have been hiding under a rock somewhere, uh, the UK just voted in what they call a hung parliament. And if you're wondering what this is, in a nutshell, it means that no one party has won enough seats to secure an overall majority in the Westminster government.
0: It's a massive shock for the UK Conservative Party and for their leader, Theresa May. So essentially, she didn't have to call this election. She chose to. She called a snap election uh, in a gamble in the hopes of increasing her majority even further than she had to give her a mandate to negotiate Brexit but now you know her political future is completely in question
1: Right and nobody knows yet what's going to happen and chances are that by the time you listen to this something else is going to have happened Uh, it's all going to become uh, clearer hopefully over the next few days but whatever happens it's definitely going to have huge implications for the upcoming Brexit negotiations between the UK and the European Union Uh, these negotiations will essentially outline what the UK's exit from the EU is going to look like. And a lot of this election was actually built around who or what was going to be promising to get the best deal in these negotiations with Europe.
0: Right. So you might be asking at this point, like, haven't I listened to the Irish passport? Like, where does (laughs) Ireland come into this whole story? Well, a lot of politicians may be trying to play it down, but Ireland will be at the very centre of any Brexit scenario.
1: Yeah. All of this is kind of silently revolving around the infamous border question. Uh, The border between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland, which is an Independent State, is set to become the only land border between the UK and the European Union once Britain leaves the EU.
0: Yes, so of course the Republic of Ireland is not leaving the EU. It has one of the highest approval ratings of the EU in the uh, whole rest of the 27 mem- remaining members. So it's going to be a land border and it's a politically and historically contentious one.
1: If you want to learn more about the border, where it came from and how people living there have reacted to these recent developments, we urge you to go back and actually listen to our last episode, our pilot episode of the Irish Passport, which is totally dedicated to the border. Uh, but for now, we're gonna focus on this hung parliament and its its significance in relation to the border.
0: Yeah, so right now the UK Conservative Party is short about 10 seats, roughly, if it wants to make a parliamentary majority and all eyes instantly went to Northern Ireland because the Democratic Unionist Party, or DUP have just won. 10 seats. Uh
1: Uh-huh. Right. So it's an obvious solution for the Tory party to enter into a coalition with the DUP.
0: Or some kind of arrangement we should say like a minority government which is just supplied votes by the DUP.
1: Indeed. Right. And the DUP have said that they're up for this and Theresa May just said a few minutes ago actually that she's up for this too. So let's establish uh, who are the DUP and what do they represent?
0: Okay. So the DUP are a unionist party. They're the biggest unionist party in Northern Ireland. So that basically means they're pro-British in their outlook generally and they're committed to keeping Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. That puts them at odds with the other major party in uh, in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin, who want the opposite. They want Northern Ireland to be part of one United Ireland. The origins of the DUP are that it was founded by the late Reverend Ian Paisley. His son is still in politics. There's another Ian Paisley knocking around these days. Uh, but uh, his father was, uh, you know, a religious radical, and uh, the party to this day is still quite closely linked to a number of Protestant churches, and particularly the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster, which was founded by Paisley himself
1: being a Unionist party, uh, the DUP have traditionally been quite hostile to cooperation with uh, the neighbouring Irish Republic. Uh, The party has drawn many of its members, actually, from the former Ulster Resistance paramilitary group. The Ulster Resistance group collaborated to give you an idea, uh, joined the conflict with the Ulster Volunteer Force uh, and the UDA, another uh, extremist group, which were uh, the main pro-British terrorist groups active during the conflict. So there's not a little touch of irony here, um, considering that the Conservatives accused Jeremy Corbyn of collaborating with Republican extremists during the campaign. Uh, The DUP incidentally also opposed the Good Friday Agreement originally in 1998 and that agreement brought about the cross community Northern Ireland Assembly. Um, However in the last few years they have softened their stance a little bit.
0: Uh, We should say that bringing old former paramilitary members into politics isn't something unusual in Northern Ireland and you know it's not just the DUP that do this. So at the moment the DUP are also the largest party in the Northern Ireland Assembly which, like Tim said, was formed in 1998 as part of the peace process to put an end to the armed conflict. It's a form of devolved government within the United Kingdom. So it's designed so that the rival uh, parties, the rival factions have to share power and they have to work together. So that means the nationalists who want Northern Ireland to leave the UK and join the Irish Republic and the unionists, like the the DUP uh, have to rule together. It's far from a perfect system and it's not really working that well at the moment, but it has been held as a success generally in bringing more peace to the province.
1: Right, uh, nobody expected it to work actually as well as it has, really, because this assembly has brought together people on a regular basis now who never would have sat at the same table before 1998 and, and now they do it all the time. Uh, so, interestingly, I suppose it's fair to say Naomi, that the assembly has also established a peculiar kind of left-right politics in Northern Ireland, right? Uh, so the nationalists, headed by Sinn Féin are mostly very left-leaning, while the unionists headed by the DUP are extremely right-wing, uh, very right-wing even by UK standards. I mean, there are actual creationists and climate change deniers in this party.
0: Yeah, well, having said that, interestingly, David McCann did point out that they, they they can be quite populist and rather left-wing economically. But in terms of their social policy for uh, particularly, you know, they are pretty conservative. So they might be slightly analogous to, you kind of evangelical Republicans in the United States. You have, uh, you know, some who are young earth creationists, don't believe in climate change, uh, think gay sex is a sin. Um, And they are very staunchly blocking any increase in abortion access, which is almost totally banned in uh, Northern Ireland at the moment.
1: Yeah, and they've had a pretty bad record in particular with gay rights. Uh, Last year, I think it was, one of their politicians, Trevor Clark, admitted that he believed only gay people could contract HIV. And a few years before that, there was a campaign in Northern Ireland, uh, led by the DUP, I believe, um, called Save Ulster from Sodomy. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. Uh, Well, of course, they are also pro-Brexit. Now, um, this is possibly slightly a confusing stance because a hard Brexit, uh, you know, in particular, it raises kind of fundamental questions to, you know, the viability of Northern Ireland, as we discussed in our last episode. But the DUP are always keen to take the most pro-British stance that there is. So they stood firm with the Conservatives on that one.
1: Right. And in some respects, uh, some people might see Brexit as a kind of protectionism against further integration between Northern Ireland and the Republic. We might remember that the border is open between Northern Ireland and the Republic, largely because of the free movement of people guaranteed by uh, the European Union.
0: It's really interesting now, the recent political upheavals, including Brexit, but not just that, the last dormant assembly, which of course, the unionists lost their majority for the first time in the history of Northern Ireland in, uh, they're having quite a distinct and a destabilization effect on politics in Northern Ireland. So Brexit has reignited talk about a united Ireland and it's making unionists and loyalists, some of them anyway, feel a little bit vulnerable. I spoke to Sophie Long, who's an academic at Queen's University, Belfast. She describes herself as a progressive unionist. So essentially, she supports Northern Ireland being part of the UK, but she doesn't think it's like the single most important thing that should dominate all politics. So as part of her academic work, she worked within the Progressive Unionist Party, which is a small left-wing unionist party. And from this like embedded viewpoint, she studied grassroots loyalism, that's loyalism to Britain, and she stood herself as a, as a candidate. I spoke to her about how loyalists feel at this moment, a kind of a, a moment of political change and upheaval. We spoke prior to the UK election, but just after the Stormont Assembly election in March, which, for the first time in history, the Unionists lost their majority in Stormont. So, Sophie, can you tell me, how would you explain to someone who isn't familiar with Northern Ireland. What, what are unionists and what are loyalists?
3: Uh, unionists loyalists. Uh, so you'd have different strands of unionism. You'd have people who just support the continuation of the union of Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Uh, but you have like unionist identity which can mean uh, being part of the Orange Order, uh, supporting marching bands um, and other cultural institutions. Um, you can be a unionist uh, and a loyalist um, but you normally can't be a loyalist and not a unionist. So if you're a loyalist you'll either be a working class unionist to be a Unionist who has either experienced or enacted violence, or you have a more comfortable relationship with loyalist paramilitaries than Unionists would. So in general it's about class and violence, that's the difference.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your research and what you discovered?
3: Yeah, no worries. So I was uh, embedded as in a member of, of the PUP and working, uh, doing training for the PUP, the Progressive Unionist Party, uh, since about May 2015 until just recently. Um, so, what that meant would have been um, working closely with uh, a young group of kind of left leaning PUP members, um, running for election in May 2016 uh, in Upper Ban, working with some of the guys up there, um, and then working as uh, Director of Communications, putting out press statements, sitting on the executive, attending branch meetings, committee meetings, all sorts of stuff. Um, which meant that I had basically unfettered access uh, to the political elites in the party, but also the grassroots. Loyalists feel abject and despised. And they feel that kind of their cultural preferences are devalued, their political contributions are unrecognized, um, the labor market doesn't want them, the education system's failing them. All these kind of things which which mean that they feel marginalized. So so loyalists over the past 20 years have persistently uh, argued that they are framed as deviant, apolitical, violent, retrograde, uh, unthinking, knuckle-draggers. And there's evidence that they have been portrayed in those ways. And there's evidence that some of it is warranted. Uh, So my research was really to investigate um, if this is true and also who do loyalists want respect from because if you find out who somebody wants the respect of you can find out about who they want to collaborate with what their significant relationships are and so some of the findings were basically that there's a bit of a generational difference in the PUP. that's who I focused on the older generation want to repair the relationship with mainstream middle class unionism they believe that will make them stronger and the majority of the younger generation who would be post ceasefire um they want loyalism to be an independent, class-conscious, uh, feminist, socialist kind of movement, which rejects the kind of abusive relationship that goes on with mainstream unionism. I think that what we need to do is actually look at the like empirical problems people are facing, mental health, education, employment, physical health, all the evidence shows if you put money into that stuff, youth workers, all that kind of stuff, uh, people's outcomes will improve, and therefore the way we talk about this stuff might, might be slightly different.
0: And how are um, the Unionist and Loyalist communities reacting to the Brexit vote?
3: In a couple of different ways. Because Brexit has triggered this talk of United Ireland, Unionist and Loyalist communities are kind of retreating from like, a more confident position and starting to sort of wonder about whether or not they're going to be ushered into United Ireland. Um, I'm sure you know all the stats, but like, the majority of people identify as British. Two-thirds, I think, voted Brexit. So they were kind of pleased initially to get, get the, the outcome they wanted. But now that Sinn Féin seem to be politically dominant and a little bit more articulate, there's there's a bit of worry there. The election result, in the same way, again, you know, for the first time since the creation of the state, we don't have a unionist majority. Now, if you conceive of your identity in terms of us and them, that's very, very worrying. And also, if you think about the way that nationalists were treated in Northern Ireland, if you assume they're going to do that right back to you, you're going to be very, very worried. So I've heard some people talk about a return to violence quite openly, which I just think is, uh, they'll be scooped up by the spooks within days, you know. There's no major weapons left, Only 20%. So they'll be lifted initially, but it's almost this kind of um, sense of duty, sense of like uh, sacrifice to the cause that you would give it a go anyway, even though you know.
0: After our chat, I decided to visit a loyalist area to speak to some of the community that Sophie and I had been discussing. So I decided to go to a pipe band competition in Lisburn. Pipe marching is kind of a bastion of, you know, unionist and loyalist identity. This one was hosted by the Pride of Ballymacash marching band. It's operated out of the Lisburn Orange Hall and essentially dozens of bands from all over Northern Ireland dressed in really ornate uniforms, some of them quite expensive, and carrying drums and pipes. They all gathered outside the Orange Hall and chatted. Some of them were buying chips from burger vans and waving union jacks. And they held a competition, so that means that the bands marched around the town of Lisburn in a route. It goes through the streets, businesses, past houses, all of that. And on their route, they're they're judged in. It. It's a competition, so some of them will get like higher marks, and some of them will get lower. And then there's like an a event and a party afterwards. So in some parts of Northern Ireland, marches like this, you know, an overt and some would say quite territorial demonstration of British identity, it rankles with residents who are from the nationalist community. Not all marches like this are contentious though. Let's hear more from the marchers themselves.
4: My name is Colin Ward. I'm the drum major of Skick flute, bong. Uh The word Skick is taken from the Gaelic. It actually means fairy thorn. Uh, and that's where, where a town lawn just outside the Moor, about three miles outside the Moor, County Down. The band's history goes back into the 18 hundreds.
0: Just to describe what you're wearing, um, you've got like a red jacket with very rich gold brocade and medals, and also you have. You're not wearing it now, but over there you've got a, a tall bearskin hat. Um, so could you explain a little bit about what just what the uniform is?
4: Right. Well, this is, it's a replica Irish Guards uniform. The bear skin is a genuine bear skin. It's not an imitation, one of synthetic fur. It's a genuine bear skin.
0: Where would you get the bears? Uh,
4: well, they're, seemingly they're taken from the brown bear. Um, I carry a, a regulation sword as well, uh, which is all part of the adornments. My medals are medals that I have earned myself uh, through my service for, the, for Queen and Country. So I wear them with parade when I'm on parade as well.
0: So what does it mean to march around the streets? What's the significance of it?
4: Well, it's part of our culture. Uh, The Protestant culture goes back hundreds of years and uh, we're a culture we were very proud of um, himself, and very proud indeed they're going to get a back- better background noise here
0: yeah here comes the band <laughs>
4: Yeah. so the band's just coming up the road here now at the minute, this is the host band and what they do is they'll parade first and then whenever the host band comes in and finishes then the rest of the bands will start to form up and they'll gradually move off one by one
5: My name's Jim, the band captain, South Belfast, Young Conquerors, band from Donegal Pass in Belfast.
0: Can you tell me a, a little bit about the tunes that you play and what meanings they have?
5: Just traditional Blood and Thunder tunes, um, tunes related to um, the Orange Order, things like that there and all, you know, a p- few bands actually play tunes that are in the charts. The Is this your son? That's my son, yeah, he's a drum major, he um, he leads the band. Really? So he does, yeah. Uh, and Yep. So what's the um, um, the, um, community, um we just feel as if we're being up, stripped of absolutely everything. You know, um so think, say things a big part of our tradition to keep these bomb going. A lot of people don't want the periods, but but you see the money it brings in the, the economy every year. millions upon millions and people want it to but they'll not stop, you know. Say so well we need to keep them going.
6: And
0: why do you think people don't want the
5: just don't want damn unionist loyalist bands on the on the streets. Yeah, you understand that um, people have different views. But the end this is our heritage, as we were brought up as. You know, when people people don't like it, but what do you do? You know, we we'll say we're we'll never going anywhere.
7: I'm Ken in from Campnellagan Valley. They're uh, going from 1979. We come from a large loyalist housing estate in South Belfast and uh, we have about 60 members at the minute so we have all, all male so it gets a lot of young men and people away from the housing states it gets them out and about and they meet people with the same interests as them the same tradition and stuff like that there and uh, I don't know whether you know that, but the bond scene and people are in bonds are always uh, all the black people don't know what exactly what was going on them People think that all the fellas that are in bonds are all unemployed, whereas 98% of fellas in our bond work for a living. You couldn't be in a bond and be unemployed because it costs that much money. Most of them are self-funded, so don't rely on anybody for money or anything like that. We that just got new flutes there, seven and a pounds for the fleets. And this uniform is a, a year old, costs us 30 £30,000. And every every one of the drums is uh, about five hundred pound, and we have fifteen of them. So, uh, so there's a lot of money involved. Them. In. Everybody needs something to belong to. Got all the kids in the band. Look up the the elder guys in the band. We're all we're trying to keep our tradition going because it's under attack from all all kinds of sectors. We're basically a working class uh, organisations, and uh, as I say, middle class, upper class people look down on you and think you're you're, you're just. The worst of society. And, and I'm talking about our own Protestant community as well. I'm not nice no, it's nicest don't even understand because they think we're all telling them each other, which we're not. It's just, it's a whole, it's a, it's a lifetime experience for me. Now I'm in the bottom of What a wee lot to get there. And as I say, I'm 54 now. So it's a whole lifetime experience.
0: The chairman of the Pride of Ballymacash, the hosting band, whose name is Barry Williamson, invited me into the Orange Hall for a chat. It was the first time I'd ever been in an Orange Hall. I have to say, I was really curious about it. So these are like the clubhouses of the Orange Order, which is a bastion of Protestant and pro-British identity in Northern Ireland. So it was like an ordinary community hall with a space for tables and a small kitchen. And there was a sort of a stage where you might have a band. There were also twin portraits hanging of Queen Elizabeth, the current British monarch, and also William of Orange. William of Orange was the Dutch-born Protestant king, whose victories against Catholic forces in the 17th century are still celebrated every year by the Orange Order. So let's hear more from Barry Williamson. So can you tell me, what does the the flute band involve?
8: We parade nine months a year. We practice 11 months a year. We put so much time into it, it's like, a, it's like a part-time job most of the time and sometimes it overtakes your job as well, um, you put that much effort into it, especially when you're running the band like ourselves would, it does take up a lot of time but you love it so that's why you do it. Um, we've done it for years, we've all been in it from our kids, my kids are here behind you now, it's good for the kids as well, you know, we'll get the kids in from a young age, there's a lot of kids there, you bring in, you're taking the kids off the street as well where normally we bring them in, teach them an instrument, a bit of discipline and a bit of self-respect and stuff. So.
0: And can you explain um, to someone who's not familiar um, with the culture at all, what's the importance of the, the parades to you?
8: Well, uh, the majority of parades we do would be competition parades, so the bands go out um, and they're marked in different categories, like there's large bands, small bands, um, a melody flute band. A lot of bands go out every every week to be the best, and some of the, the bands we have here in this country are, are the best at what they do in the world. Uh, and there's other bands who maybe aren't as good, but they're due for the community. A lot of people see the bad side of things.
6: Um, a
0: couple of the bands I was talking to f- said, they told me that they felt the, the bands were a bit vilified.
8: We are, we're vilified, marginalised to uh, uh, a large degree. Again, you know, the way we're sitting talking to you now, a lot of time people don't want to talk because they get put across in, in the wrong way, um, and it's not right. We need to talk, we need to express our culture, and we need to, for people to, to know what we're about. You know, we're not knuckle trackers. We're out trying to do their best by our community. The way, the way you see things portrayed poorly in the press, that's a very small percentage. You know, you get a couple of contentious periods each year, we don't even take part in a contentious period ourselves. You know, there's a couple around Belfast and maybe further afield It would be contentious, but it's a very, very small minority, as I to say.
0: So you, for you, you don't feel there's like a political element to it?
8: Uh, well, of course there is. You know, the way Northern Ireland is, there is a political element to it.
0: And how about the whole Brexit debate? Did it play out in your community at all?
8: No, not really, no. Um, We we see Brexit as a good thing, obviously, but I know a lot of people don't think that. But we see it as a good thing. Um, And I'm sure the vast, vast majority of people in in the unionist community and the marching marching bands would see it as a good thing.
0: I headed back down to the street again as the last bands left on their route. I had been told before visiting Lisburn that this was a good event for me to go to as someone from the Irish Republic, because the paramilitaries who are dominant in this area are the more well-behaved establishment variety, the UDA or Ulster Defence Association. The DUP was endorsed by a group linked to the UDA during the election campaign. I wasn't planning to chat to anybody about paramilitaries, but to my surprise, one man in the crowd brought it up spontaneously. We were chatting. Unprompted, he pointed to a passing band and said cheerfully, We're UDA, they're UDF. But we're all friends. He was giving out leaflets to advertise another band parade, so I asked him for a quick chat. can, can you tell me what what are you what's the annual um the march that you're promoting here?
6: Well this one is thirty years of age. Right. It's young Andrew Mason, who's a young member of a band who was murdered, He went to see his young girlfriend in an area which the Republicans took him away and killed him. It's 30 years ago that happened. And we're celebrating it. And that's all we're doing. You can take that with you and you can read it and put it on your radio show whatever. But all we're saying is, we don't forget. We don't forget. This young guy was only a teenager and died for what? Because he wore a band uniform? We're here at a band parade tonight. I'd like to think you. Being here, you're not intimidated. And anyway, you can stand here and you can watch the band parade all night. The same as any Roman Catholic, if they want to come along here tonight, you'll be more welcome. UDA, UVF, IRA, Sinn Fein, whatever. They're all terrorists. we are all terrorists. I was a terrorist at once. Really? Yeah. And i wakened up. I did 14 years in prison.
0: What was that for?
6: Ready to shoot somebody. And I, looking back now, I can see myself saying, what the hell was I doing here now? What the hell was I doing now? For what? For what? For it to be, be betrayed by the British government?
0: Do you think the British government has betrayed you?
6: Yes. Yes, 100%. Why? The Litchens being IRA into our government to tell us what we do!
1: That was a really interesting report to hear, actually. And, you know, it might be worth mentioning as well for uh, a lot of the people in the UK uh, who are maybe a bit shocked about the extremism uh, of this party that may be getting into the Westminster government, that this party, just like any other political party, I suppose is a bit of a mixed bag.
0: Of course, you know, we can't stereotype anybody from any community. I mean, humans are all the same and you get all shades and all shapes and sizes. You know, I got the sense when I was talking to to the marchers that you know for some of them the whole pipe band tradition is a a great opportunity you know drink some beer and just let off steam and even air like sectarian hostilities Uh, but you know for others it's more like scouts it's more like something completely innocent which is more about family and kids and learning music and passing on traditions and you know for me i sensed it could be both things at the same time as well but the edge was never far away
1: Sure. And we will definitely be returning to look at this issue in the future. And we'll also be looking, of course, at the other side of the coin, at the nationalist community in all its variety and at Sinn Féin. Absolutely. Of course, a part of the reason why we're not speaking very much about Sinn Féin today is because they, unlike the DUP, don't actually take up the seats that they win in Westminster.
0: Right. It's fascinating. So year after year, whole constituencies elect Uh, MPs that will never take their seats, and they know they'll never take their seats. It's a policy called abstentionism. I heard a lot of people asking actually from the UK if Sinn Féin would consider giving up this policy, if it meant being able to create a progressive coalition with the UK Labour Party and perhaps some other parties thrown in. Uh, Tim, where does this policy come from historically?
1: Right. Well, this abstentionism was actually one of the founding political strategies of Irish Republicans right since the War of Independence. In 1918, after a 1918 election where uh, Sinn Féin won a resounding majority all over the island of Ireland, uh, the constituencies that voted in Sinn Féin uh, refused to take their seats in in Westminster, which meant that more or less the entire country refused representation in Westminster. And that started the ball rolling for Irish independence. And that tradition continued right into recent decades. Uh, The idea is. that the nationalist Sinn Féin party still don't recognise UK control of Northern Ireland and instead uh, swear allegiance to the Republic. It was a huge issue at the beginning of Northern Ireland's history as a separated, partitioned province, uh, because little little pockets of Northern Ireland would just keep essentially defecting and trying to join the Republic um, by practicing this nationalism of the mind. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, and um, this was actually one of the reasons that gerrymandering became so common to just stop this from happening.
0: Gerrymandering. Just to be clear, that means the manipulation of electoral boundaries to ensure a particular result, right?
1: Indeed, and it's common all over the world world in fact. Um, This is essentially exactly uh, getting a lot of people into uh, particular constituencies to make sure that one side of uh, the political spectrum always has the upper hand and this is what happened in Northern Ireland with unionism uh, for a long time and it was one of the main reasons for the conflict up there in the 60s, 70s and 80s.
0: You know I find it quite interesting as Welsh and Fein have become increasingly a mainstream party in the Republic of Ireland. In the UK they're like totally toxic you know like I don't know if you saw this during the campaign but uh, pictures of Jeremy Corbyn with Jerry Adams who's you know an ordinary politician almost at this stage in the Republic were printed on the front page of newspapers like it was you know the smear to end all smears and we'll just sink his campaign.
1: So I suppose you know tabloid newspapers in particular it's easy to stick the word terrorist over somebody's face and try and manipulate people in that way?
0: Or? Well you, the UK press is pretty outstanding in terms of its <laughs> kind of uh, wearing its biases on its sleeve, I suppose, sure, yeah. some newspapers more than others. Um, actually, David McCann had something interesting to say about this. Let's hear from him.
2: I do think it is important to point out, Sinn Féin are an Irish Republican Party. So see all this Westminster intrigue about, oh, well, you know, should, should D.P. prop up the Tories and maybe they get A, B, C and D. Sinn Féin and their voters have got no interest in that whatsoever. Uh, they wouldn't prop up a conservative government anyway, even if they even if they were in the in a balanced power position, they wouldn't be seen near them um, or any other and kind I'd, of
0: government. I wouldn't
2: think. Or or, or or any other kind of government, because because the problem is is that uh, Labour are, are on about two hundred and six seats. Uh, they need every other opposition party to pretty much row in behind them to to form a minority government. Uh, that's just not that's just not likely. Uh, to happen. So so for Sinn Féin and their base, they're very happy to just sit back and kind of kick kick up their heels on this because uh, Sinn Féin's focus is the island of Ireland um, and Sinn Féin, if you take a look at Northern Ireland's new electoral map, hold every seat that is on the border and they will use that to maximum effect um, to advance their cause around the island of Ireland and that's very much Sinn Féin's pitch. We've got 23 doll TDs, we've got 27 MLAs, and we've now got seven MPs and four MEPs. So, so, the, so they're going to argue that the political centre of gravity should be in Ireland, not in Westminster.
1: Now, this brings us to the big looming issue, which is only getting more complicated as this process goes on, and that is the possibility of a border poll.
0: A border poll, yes. And of course, a border poll means it means a referendum on whether Northern Ireland should join with Ireland and be a united Ireland, basically. So it's worth saying that, you know, this is quite a well-established possibility. It's not uh, something radical and unprecedented, like we might say the Brexit vote. It was actually set down 20 years ago as part of the uh, 1998 Good Friday Agreement. So that basically states that if a majority of voters in Northern Ireland want to be part of Ireland, they can do so via a referendum.
1: Of course, 20 years ago, this seemed quite distant uh, because the majority of people within the Northern Northern Irish border have always been unionist. Um, But this has been changing in recent times.
0: Yes, there's been this persistent shift in demographics, uh, which means that unionists have been steadily losing their majority bit by bit. And of course, there's the whole new motivational factor of Brexit, which really, you know, was a game changer.
1: Sure, Brexit is causing this huge shake up in how people are even looking at this border poll. And from now on, it's not necessarily all based on cultural background. So let's hear from David McCann again, one last time on this.
2: A border poll, or as we've now started to call it locally, a unity referendum, uh, is basically a, a, a vote that, that can take place under the provision of the, of the Good Friday Agreement to ask the citizens of the North, do they wish to leave the United Kingdom? and unify with with Southern Ireland. Um, Sinn Féin have called for this. The SDLP have also called for this after the Brexit process. So Sinn Féin's policy is that this should take place within the next five years, so by about 2021, um, uh, which would be Northern Ireland's centenary year. Um, And basically, um, does Sinn Féin's results mean uh, mean that that will happen? Well, the combined forces of nationalism have upped their vote in 2015. They got about 38.5% of the vote in Northern Ireland. They're now at about 41.1% of the vote. So they have made a jump. The only problem for them is that unionism has also done um, very, very well. And DUP have had a thumping result um, too. So that's going to really kind of... Um, um, downplay um, any kind of call for a border poll because the D P have opposed, have opposed the border poll. The UK government have said they see no need for a border poll, so I don't see anything in the immediate uh, term. But again, the way politics is moving, Naomi, and and the way things have gone over the last 24 hours, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say never.
0: Stranger things have happened, I suppose.
2: Stranger things have happened.
0: The issue of a border poll was something that I asked Sophie Long about as well, and I thought her answer was absolutely fascinating. Let's hear what she said. And what do you think would happen if there was a vote? What do you think would happen? A border poll? Um,
3: Everybody thought people wouldn't vote for Brexit because it was an unknown. And sometimes a risky unknown is better than an unpleasant known. So I wouldn't be confident anymore. I would have been previously, and actually, that's a lot. A lot of the work being done with loyalism at the minute hinges upon the argument that the union is safe. The union isn't safe anymore, so so it's going to be more difficult to do that work. So so yeah, um, might actually end up being in Ireland. Ten years, maybe thirty. How would you
0: personally feel about that?
3: Um, I think there are political and legal arguments that we as loyalists can make. Um that would um, protect us so instead of just saying no or taking up arms you can make arguments about cultural and social rights under the UN all, of, all those sorts of things um, a 32 county capitalist Ireland run by Sinn Féin I'd be deeply uncomfortable in um, you know they're not really pro women they're, they're not really like pro LGBT some of this stuff is quite um, instrumental you know strategic for them but um, and I've heard some worrying things about what they intended to do with loyalists if they ever did get a United Ireland. Um, but I think that if that's the case, you know, the, the, there's 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 stuff we there's stuff we could do. So the, the aim of the the immediate aim would be to reduce loyalist uh, nervousness and any potential for violence. Um, so I wouldn't be happy, and that's what sort of United. Ireland but a different United Ireland um, with rights for workers and women and all that kind of stuff, like a progressive United Ireland. It's just a political unit, like I, I could cope.
0: Well, we're just going to have to wait and see what's in store for the next few days. For now, I think it's all we have time for. But just to remind you, do listen back to our Border episode and uh, we'll have more coming up soon.
1: Yeah, our forthcoming episodes on the Irish language and on the Catholic Church will be coming soon, so keep an eye out for them.
0: This is the Irish Passport podcast, produced by me, Naomi O'Leary.
1: And me, Tim McInerney.
0: If you want to drop us a line, we would love to hear your feedback or any comments. Our email is theirishpassport at gmail.com or check us out on Twitter, we're at Passport Irish.
1: And you can also get all the info you need on our website, www.theirishpassport.com.
0: Thanks so much for joining us.